Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, we won't mince around, because this is a complex subject that we need to cover today, and with me is a friend and a journalist from Latvia, Yuris Koja, which you have heard in the past in our episodes about Latvian election, I think it was a couple of years ago, but I thought this subject was serious enough to get some, some help. So, hey, Yuris, how are you doing today? Hey, well, I'm glad to be here, although I, uh, I must say that I'm not a military expert. I don't. To read or speak Russian, so I'm not all that much help on that account. But uh, my uh, kind of regular coverage for the Spanish news agency EFI has uh, been all about the uh, local reactions here to the events in Ukraine and or between Ukraine and Russia. So it's it's kept me busy, and I'm aware of what's going on. I think you also know a lot about. You know, the American reaction to this whole matter, because I've heard a lot of um, a lot of people speak uh, on, on the news and interviews that, uh, you know, some people are blaming the United States for this conflict or something. And I don't know why. So maybe you can explain this. Well, you, you can sort of try to make a really bad and fragile case for blaming the U.S. by saying that that at some point the Russians understood that the position of the U.S., the strongest power in NATO, and of NATO was that NATO would not be expanded to the east, and that it happened anyway, and uh, and uh, therefore the Russians feel to some extent somewhat betrayed. I mean, yeah, these are the people who have an impeccable record of keeping treaties and promises, and then suddenly they come up and say, hey, you know, uh, you betrayed us. But in all of these these 25 years since 1997, when allegedly this idea was expressed, who's joined? I mean, you know, the three Baltic countries all together have military forces that are roughly the equivalent of maybe one Russian division, you know. So, I mean, they're not a threat. I don't know where where the Russians get this idea that they are in some way threatened by the eastern expansion of NATO because... Uh, None of the new countries have any kind of assault capability that could threaten Russia. I mean, how many tanks are there in the Baltic countries? Other than a few tanks that rotate with the NATO forces in the forward uh, enhanced battle group, well, there aren't many. Uh, well, I mean, it's a different story with Poland. Poland is a stronger military. Maybe, you know, you look down in that countries like Hungary and Romania, but still none of them have the uh, the same military capabilities and strength 
or at least if you look at the numbers, as as Russia does. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's like what one battalion of NATO forces each in each of the Baltic states, and there are like eighteen battalions uh, next to our border for one. Nine times more soldiers already, like over there. So I don't know. This call being threatened by NATO expansion seems kind of weird, since you know we've been in NATO for quite a while now, and we've never been a threat. And I heard that uh, Nikolai Svanidze, one of the journalists that I follow uh, from Dozhj, he stated that well, Russia has gotten super scared lately. So that's kind of weird. I don't know what they would be super scared of. Well, I I can imagine what they would be super scared of, but they are not super scared of the military capabilities of uh, the borderline NATO nations, nor for that matter, even of the military capabilities of NATO as a whole. There are not very many American troops in the area. Certainly, if a crisis was triggered, there would be a rapid buildup of American forces in the area, airborne and others, and maybe a carrier battle group off uh, as close to the Baltic region as, as it was safe for it to operate. But other than that, Nothing of that sort is going on here. What I think Russia is afraid of is Ukraine, despite being a rather uh, corruption-ridden society still, of Ukraine evolving in in a new direction of increased democratization, economic prosperity, and a noticeable and sharp reduction in corruption and going back to Putin's uh, rantings about how the Ukrainians are just sort of Russians who lost their way, or, you know, call them what you will, uh, that would be a rather shocking example for the Russian people that their uh, lost cousins are doing better than they are. Their lost cousins are sort of becoming informally a part of the European Union, uh, that their lost cousins are eliminating uh, the the kind of... uh, corruption that we see a lot in Russia, and above all, that they're eliminating the kind of authoritarian and repressive way of governing their country. There are problems in the Ukraine, but you do not have the vast repression of dissent and control of the media and all of that that you see going on in Russia. I think that's a threat. Yeah, I agree with with this because I wanted to touch on this specifically since, well, I wrote about this in an article recently for the foreign policy about the history part. And, you know, Russia needs to pick up this Kiev and Rus battalion. So, you know, to to be this Russian president, because Russia and Ukraine are very tied. For example, if Ukraine starts to develop very quickly, then the Russian people might be, you know, interested in how their neighbors are developing so quickly. And they, they might actually, you know, start to blame Putin for their problems. Putin might actually lose popular support in this way. So, well, they would be right. They would be right in blaming Putin and his kind of uh, autocratic, authoritarian oligarchy that he's built up around himself. Now, I, as I said, I do not understand Russian, uh, but I have a family member who watches uh, my wife who watches a lot of these Russian TV broadcasts that are kind of talk shows. Uh, where they bring in various people, uh, some guy, some famous actor, his his lover, his wife, some person in the family who's drinking themselves to death. In this program, you often see scenes from the countryside in Russia, uh, from outside of Moscow. And that's a third world out there. And a lot of people say this, that you have a number of highly developed urban cities that could, you know, be mistaken for Europe, or, you know, even Moscow could be mistaken for, you know, Chicago or someplace. But once you go outside the, the metropolitan areas in, in Russia, you're back in a sort of the semi-third world. It's the, the basically you're, you're 
or at uh, you know goats and cattle in the street among uh, broken down shacks type of scene. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people say the same thing, that, that Russia is St. Petersburg and Moscow, and outside of that is, well, the real Russia. There's a major difference there. And um, I think a year ago there was a report about how someone had stolen 20 kilometers of road, literally of asphalt, and then sold it on the black market that was in some sort of administrator thing. So there's insane corruption and, and quality of life is much lower. And in the meantime, I think that, you know, targeted sanctions, they also hurt because, you know, there's this joke in Russian um, when a kid comes home from school and says, Daddy, Daddy, I, I heard that, uh, you know, the prices of vodka are going to get increased. Will this mean that you'll drink less? And Daddy turns to him and answers, No, son, it means that you'll eat less. And I think I think that's kind of one of the effects as well lately. And uh, Putin kind of wants to shift the blame to the West about the sanctions because, you know, not like his cronies are stealing less, it's just that they're stealing, well, more to compensate in a way, I suppose. That could be. That could be one of the effects of sanctions. But the thing, uh, of course, sanctions, as far as trade and, and financial transactions with the West, will affect the metropolitan areas more. I don't think there are too many uh, people out in the backwaters of Russia that are buying uh, late model cars or that they're doing anything, you know, that, that would involve transactions, uh, financial transactions or purchases from uh, Western companies, of not even luxury, but sort of middle class goods. But it'll, it'll hit at the middle class in Russia. And I, these are the people basically who, who are supposed to be the intelligent voters out there, the Russian electorate. And uh, they should, if we could use such words, they need a kick in the ass to realize, you know, what the people they have elected or what the people they sort of passively are supporting are doing to them and are doing to their countries and are doing to their sons and daughters if there is indeed a shooting war in the next uh, week or so. I, I was wondering, by the way, about the fact that if a shooting war breaks out, what are the chances Ukraine actually you know, manages to, to keep things going? And uh, if, if they manage to stand against aggression, do you think they maybe could actually go and waltz in into Crimea if this goes well for them? I don't know. What's the Ukrainian side? What could be like uh, the strength of them? I don't know what the Ukrainians' plans are. Certainly the Ukrainians would like to have Crimea back. And certainly the Crimeans would like to have Ukraine back, interestingly enough, because uh, there is the population of the Crimean Tatars who were uh, well-treated and could live their own lives in Ukraine. There were no serious problems for the residents of Crimea as part of Ukraine that were any more serious than problems for Ukrainians in general. So what I could see in kind of best worst case scenario or worst best case scenario would be a kind of repeat of the uh, 1939 uh, uh, Russia-Finland or Soviet Union-Finland winter war. Lest we forget that uh, World War II, which the Russians tried to paint over as the great patriotic war from 1941 to 1945, was actually the Second World War in which the initial aggressors were both Germany and the Soviet Union, with Germany attacking Poland, Soviet Union moving in when the Germans had already basically smashed the Poles pretty badly, and then the Soviet Union attacking little neutral Finland. What happened was it, it was very hard going for the Finns, but the Finns managed to very badly damage the initial army group that was sent to take Finland. And it was only when Russia had to mobilize kind of like a second wave and try to break through the Mannerheim line and all that, that they got down to uh, trying to negotiate some sort of a peace. But not before 
basically the initial surge of Russians into uh, or, or Soviet troops in, into Finland had been pretty badly decimated. Of course, it's a different it's a different battle environment now than Finland in 1939. But uh... yeah, I mean, uh, from from Russia's perspective, I watch a lot of uh, very weird YouTube channels about this about the subject. One of them is uh, Roy TV, a Russian far-right opposition to Putin, where Igor Girkin, the Strelkov, the separatist leader, is often a guest. Yesterday, he managed to, to publicly admit that, according to his knowledge, because he keeps in touch with, with all the people in Donbass, Russia is now sending uh, our private warfare company Wagner guys in there. And he was very disappointed about their discipline and morale and everything. From the Russian perspective, I guess, this will be blamed as a Ukrainian assault on Donbass? And then Russia is going to come in to defend their own citizens or something. But they're only there, and and they are sending these uh, deniable assets. You know. Well, they they have already created citizens. They've been handing out Russian passports left and right in the Donbas area. Now Wagner is <laughs> it's sort of uh, I don't know how many will understand the reference, but it's sort of like sending the uh, uh, the Russian version of. Uh, McHale's Navy, but but in an evil sense. These were these sort of incompetent uh, sailors in, a, in an American film comedy. But the Wagners managed to, in, in the Middle East, I think it was in Syria, managed to stumble upon a uh, unit of American special forces, and they got massacred. There, there were like a couple of hundred Wagners who were killed. Yeah, I remember that one. I made an episode about this. Yeah, because the Americans the Americans fought American style. First of all, they had pretty good firepower on their side, and then they called it an airstrike and said, well, bye-bye, folks. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad because I, I listened to interviews about this from, from their perspective, and uh, you know, people who were kind of nearby this operation stated that the Wagner guys were under-equipped. They didn't have any uh, night sight equipment, night vision equipment, and uh, they were unprepared for, for being, you know, struck by drones. What I really don't know is how well the Ukrainian army, well, they're motivated, we know that, but we don't know how well they're equipped because, you know, what, what exactly has been provided to them? Well, I think in the last eight years, their level of equipment and training has gone up very significantly. Uh, they have Turkish drones. Uh, they, uh, there was a big scandal from the Russian side when a Turkish drone blew up an artillery position. They probably have night vision. Night vision is something you can go out and even buy out of your own pocket if, you, if you're interested in having it. Um, I hope, reasonably presuming, that they will have American battlefield intelligence if something starts, that they'll have uh, these, uh, these surveillance aircraft, maybe not in... There's a shooting war, not maybe directly in Ukrainian airspace, as, as they are now, but uh, you know, very nearby, and they'll be able to relay a battlefield intelligence to the Ukrainian forces and targeting intelligence and say, look, you know, like there are 20 tanks outside the, this or that town, the Ukrainians will be able to direct uh, rocket artillery or whatever they happen to be used against this, or move their, move their mobile anti-tank forces and shoot these tanks with javelins and other weapons out of the woods, you know. So I think it'll be a really rough ride for uh, Russia to, to go into, the, into Ukraine, and they will meet uh, well-trained, well-armed, and above all, very motivated soldiers. These people are, I mean, what are you going to tell, you know, old Ivan from, from uh, you know, lower horses ass Russia as to why he's there, you know? What's he doing there? Yeah. Well, Ukrainians are fighting for their own land if, if a shooting war starts out. But talking about American intelligence, um, this happens a lot on Twitter since, you know, we, we've heard a lot of reports lately about how Russia is making a provocation and how they're planning. And 
like a day ago, I think it was it was how Putin has actually given the order to to you know commence with the war. And at the same time, we had a reaction where, like, what, 30 countries, including our own Latvia, published a call for Latvian citizens in Ukraine to get out of the country. So how, how realistic is a war scenario right now? How much should we trust this? Because I think, I think personally that because of these leaks, although some people state that they could just be made up, I, I believe that they are very real. But I think that these leaks to public about Russia's plans are one of the reasons why we still haven't gotten a true shooting war there. There is some logic to that, because what we're saying to the Russians and the United States and, and certainly other Western intelligence services have the capacity and the capability to monitor communications, to observe troop movements with satellites. But, you know, that, that doesn't tell you as much as if you can actually listen to the, the internal communications of these forces. And they have determined from what's going on, the chatter, so to speak, on, on military communications, that some kind of an order has been given. And also from observing, you know, the reactions to this kind of communication, uh, that people actually, that this is not false uh, kind of disinformation being spread because the units are told to move move up or reposition and they do do it. So I think the intelligence is good. The, the question is, is Putin crazy enough to go ahead with this and basically risk a war that could bring down his own uh, government? Uh, because when the body bags start going back to Russia, and when there is no glorious immediate victory, not that there could be one, people are going to question it. This is not Stalin's Russia. And as I said, what are the the, the Russian troops fighting for compared to what the, the Ukrainians are fighting for? Also, a lot, of, a lot of people in the West might not know that because they often think that such countries like Russia or, or in the past the Soviet Union, they could just hide the body bags or Gruz 200, you know, cargo 200. But Afghanistan war, for example, which was an example of this, was highly unpopular because, you know, the coffins did came back. People were super unhappy. And, you know, tomorrow we have a Afghan war remembrance day as well. It's kind of weird since even now, even about the, the Wagner thing, I've uh, watched on YouTube a bunch of interviews with mothers and wives and family members of these private warfare company soldiers, you know, who've died and the Russian government just refuses to admit that they even exist. The Russian policy in this matter is just deny any involvement whatsoever. They don't pay any pensions. They don't give out any any funds. That causes a lot of lot of problems there. One interesting thing is I think that Putin's government is going to feel some pressure and be in trouble when the military, you know, the Shilaviki, the the military, the people with guns, be it Rosgvardia, be it other, other kinds of forces, they start, you know, protesting against this. There was a couple of years ago, this uh, YouTube channel person, he was from Caucasus, but he was one of the desantniki, you know, the the special forces guy in Russia. The sort of assault troops, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he started making YouTube videos about how he dislikes Putin and how Putin has betrayed Russia, basically, and how he has, has done terrible things. And he very quickly was put into jail, and he's sitting there for like three years now already, or something. They pinned a case up on him and just put him into jail ASAP since Putin is really, really wary when such people, you know, who actually, because Russia has traditionally has a lot of respect for people in the military professions, and Putin knows that the common people will listen to such people who are in the army. So, Well, that, that just goes to show how repressive Russia is and, and how scared they are of, of uh, the people who theoretically know what they are doing in terms of military affairs coming out and saying, hey, this is this is a, a foolish thing we're doing. I mean, in the U.S., I mean, when the Vietnam War started to go sideways, uh, 
there were also military officers who, who said this is not a winnable war, um, but they were not thrown in jail. They were criticized. Maybe some of them might have been asked to resign from the military, but then nobody was thrown in jail as far as I remember. I think there's an, another scenario is even if they succeed in getting far into the Ukraine is that the Ukraine is going to become a Slavic Vietnam for Russia. Because defeating, you know, breaking through the, the first lines of Ukrainian defense is not going to end the war. It's going to change the war into a massive guerrilla resistance. I mean, you will not be able to walk out into the street in a Russian uniform without drawing a bullet. You know, that's the way things may turn out in some places. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at Russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One important thing is that uh, last time when I spoke about this, I mentioned one important area to watch is Transnistria, you know, little strip in Moldavia, which is basically still a Russian military base, which still lives in Soviet era style everything. That place is under a blockade now. I wonder how the Belarusian flank will also develop because they have a lot of forces there. If Russia invades currently, I can't even say from, from where exactly. I think it might be from Belarus or something, but that's one of the reasons why, why I don't believe this is going to get to a shooting war. Not just yet, definitely, because I have no idea where, from which direction they could even assault. Like, it could come from Donbass, from Belarus, Transnistria, in Moldova, so... Well, they're doing that, I think, to, to keep the, uh, the Ukrainians uh, guessing and to keep them, you know, scattered. Because the, the forces that they have in uh, Belarus, the forces that they have just close to Kiev, and the forces that they have in Crimea, 
all of them could do a lot of damage. I mean, they could head for Mariupol, they could head down the coast, they could do a lot of uh, a lot of serious stuff there, assuming that what they actually are able to do is similar to the capabilities that we seem to see from, from satellite images and all of that. You know, we don't know how many of those tanks are going to, how well they were maintained. We don't know how many of those tanks are going to make it past the first uh, line of people with javelins and how those tanks not making it past the javelins, how that's going to affect the morale of the others, you know. One of the things, again, if you're looking at YouTube uh, and looking at the effects of anti-tank weapons, this is not like something going bang against the side of a tank and then a little smoke comes out. And then they, I mean, this is like World War II stuff that I've seen that, then people sort of jump out of the tank and run away, or I don't know what, you know. Uh, what happens when these modern anti-tank weapons hit is these tanks turn into infernos. I mean, there's like immediately, like the turret blows off and there's like this 20 meter high uh, spout of flame for like 30 seconds, which basically fries and roasts everything inside the tank. Uh, that is something that if I was in the tank behind the one that gets hit would make me sort of reconsider what I was doing there, though. If you look at the counter-arguments from Russian side, they often claim that, oh, Russia is being surrounded by NATO. Well, if you look at the borders, then you can see that Russia is definitely not surrounded by NATO. Instead, what they're doing is literally surrounding Ukraine with insane amount of military troops. It's kind of hypocritical, don't you think, for, for Russia to complain? Of course it is, of course. I mean, but this is nothing new. What is going on here? in kind of the broader meta-historical terms, is it's trying to reconstruct the Russian Empire again. And, and the Russian Empire existed as the Russian Empire up until uh, the beginning of the 20th century when we had, uh, you know, Poland and Baltic countries and other places sort of break away and become independent. Then you had the Soviet Union forming around the same time, and then the Soviet Union trying to take most of these places, or actually taking a lot of these places back, either incorporating them as they did to the Baltic states, or you know making them part of their zone of influence or sphere of influence, the Warsaw Pact. This is a historical Russian process of trying to not kind of have some reasonably stable and, and manageable relations on an equal state-to-state -state basis with its neighbors but of either subjugating or intimidating or trying to conquer its immediate neighboring countries, even where these countries are militarily not capable of doing any serious harm to Russia. Different story maybe with Germany, but even Germany failed to uh, defeat Russia in the, in, in the Second World War. Talking about Germany, at least the Ukrainians that I follow, they, they tend to call Germany lately being a bit naive maybe weird, since Germany's blocking the Estonian weapon sales to, to Ukraine. They've been acting a bit strange. I believe that the, the leadership of the EU is now slowly transferring to France, in my opinion, because of these actions, because they're losing, losing some prestige and some face. And, uh, well, it is a bit weird that Germans are so friendly. Although I shouldn't be surprised, since Gerhard Schröder, the ex-chancellor, is, well, still in Gazprom, after all. There is this whole thing. I mean, the Germans got started with this whole Ostpolitik thing back in the, in the 60s, whatever it was, 70s. To some extent, they did help a little bit more traffic between East and West, and, uh, between the two diametrically opposite political systems at the time. 
which is not really the case, although we have basically a, a kind of semi-dictatorship in Russia now anyway. And then you have the whole element of German guilt and pacifism. It's pretty clear that when Germany fought the war, uh, you know, the, the Operation Barbarossa against Russia, they did an incredible amount of harm to, to Russia, to, to Russian infrastructure, to the civilian population. And one could uh, even say to the Russian military, but the Russian military was for a long time read, led by, by people who didn't know what they were doing, by people who foolishly you know, wasted Russian lives in, in, in various sorts of uh, heroic so-called assaults and, and, and whatever against German firepower, which uh, in terms of a war of attrition, of course, they won that way. But whether that was the smartest way to do things is another, is another issue. Then, of course, you have the whole period of the 20s and the 30s when, uh, when the Germans were able to circumvent some of the Versailles restrictions and experiment with uh, aircraft and with rockets and with a number of other things using, uh, using you know, Russia as a place where they could do this. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the 20s, there was a famous uh, tank school in, in the early 30s in, in Russia where the German tank officers were trained. It was, it was also well known. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, those German tank officers came back in 1941. But uh, <laughs> it is a bizarre relationship, I would say, between uh, Germany and Russia. And, and well, up until 1939, 1940, uh, you could sort of understand the Russians had offered certain opportunities for the Germans. The Germans offered certain opportunities for Russia to purchase raw materials, and they paid for being able to drive around in their tanks in, in, in Russia. And then it all fell apart with this, with this incredibly horrific war that they fought with each other, uh, with a kind of no, no regard for human life on either side. And, and uh, the Russians have certainly not forgotten it, nor have the Germans. The Germans feel, I would assume they, and then to a large extent rightly, they feel sort of guilt and responsibility for the way they turned Russia into what Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands, you know, the, the damage that was done to Russia by the, by the German invasion. It's been like 30 years since the collapse of the USSR and Putin's been there for like 20. Does anyone really believe that he actually wins these elections? And, and do they think that they're doing some, some help to the Russian people by, by helping him stay in power with all the economical deals and everything? If, if they would kind of care about Russia and have this guilt, then maybe they should somehow, you know, en encourage Putin to step away from power, at least peacefully, I think, because, you know, at this point, Putin has probably enough money on hidden Swiss bank accounts that he could just buy all of Maldives, say, as an example, right? And he could just go and do whatever. So wh why isn't he just leaving? I think money is one of the factors that Putin could offer lucrative jobs to uh, Germans who, uh, like Schroeder, well, I mean, the other thing is, it's not only Germany, it's the United Kingdom, it's Britain, which is the playground. London is the financial and educational playground of the Russian elite. You know, uh, we, you don't see too many uh, German uh, schools filling up with uh, Russian students from the Moscow elite, but you see that happening in London because, of course, everybody there in, in, in Russia wants their kids to learn the, the international language of, of business commerce and, and culture you can disagree with that which is English you know nobody's gonna go teach their kids you know the language for ordering uh, dogs around you know? <laughs> so well, some people speak of German but 
But this this whole attitude about you know Russians in the West is is kind of hypocritical again from the Russian part since we know that Lavrov uh, and and others just have houses and and properties everywhere in Western Europe, and at the same time they're also you know they also always yell at the West for being evil and everything all the time in the news. And today, ambassador of the Russian Federation in um, in Sweden, Viktor Tatarinsev stated that, um, and I'll quote here, first in Russian, then in English, or Russia shits on Western sanctions. Direct quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Shitteri sanctioner in Swedish. Yeah, so, well, you know, I mean, that that exposes uh, what these guys are all about. I mean, Ann Applebaum had an article now in the Atlantic uh, magazine where she basically said, you have to start really talking tough back to the Russians in their own kind of, style and terminology which which nobody has done so far everybody pretends that you know when russians come out to talk or you know to present themselves as this interview with the swedish media that the russians are engaging in quote unquote diplomacy as we understand it where you know everybody sort of understands the the subtext of what they're saying and 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 nobody nobody says anything radical no this is not the thing the russians are basically saying you know fuck off to everybody right now Literally. And that's the thing. I've been mentioning this on the show a couple of times, but Putin is an ex-KGB officer and he really speaks this language of strength. You know, you have to push him back. And and we've that's very visible in the political sphere, even in Latvia. We've gone sort of complacent with this politeness too much that sometimes we don't even, you know, in polite society, we sometimes don't even speak about qualities that, hey, maybe a leader should have, which are maybe not as nice and polite as, as you know, we would like to portray ourselves being, such as I would much rather prefer that our prime minister, for example, would have some bit of nastiness so that he can grab the people by the balls when needed, you know, certain people in certain cases, in this case, all the all the weirdos that, uh, that are making protests, specifically Mr. Zgudzen. We're just so polite that we can't understand this more animalistic language of pure bashing face. I don't know if a guy like Gorbzev is his prime minister, which I, I regard as a, as a nightmare. Oh, wh- wh- where's Kurub then? For those who are, not, who are not familiar with him, he is a disbarred, I think he's disbarred, a disbarred lawyer who has become a kind of fanatical anti-vaxxer, anti-mandates, anti-lockdowns, anti-public health uh, kind of agitator, you know, making ultimatums to the government saying you you must resign and you must let me take over and I will be the next great leader of Latvia. While getting Russian funding, definitely getting Russian funding since, well, we have um, allegedly, of course, I have to say here, but uh, definitely a lot of evidence, circumstantial, but still there, there's plenty of reasons to think that he's, he's getting Russian funding here. What I'm mentioning here is the fact that if our leaders, if our government can't deal with Gubzebs, with this basically nobody, right? How can we trust them to, to be able to respond to this Ukrainian crisis properly? I mean, do you really believe that, for example, the Baltic states are ready to accept a bunch of refugees from Ukraine because they'll definitely be coming here or, in, or, or to Poland? Do you think we're ready for that too? How are, how are we to respond to the situation? Well, I mean, uh, when it comes to attitudes toward refugees... There is an incredible amount of skepticism about taking in refugees because the refugees that have shown up so far are the wrong color, the wrong ethnicity, and the wrong religion. And, you know, and people immediately say, we're importing savages, we're importing uh, Islamists, uh, terrorists, and besides, you know, there are the, these jungle savages from Africa or whatever. I mean, I'm using not my terminology, I'm using kind of terminology you see on 
on social media. So I think if we're not literally overrun, I mean, if we don't have like thousands of uh, Ukrainians sleeping in the parks here, then we will accept that because they're white. They're what are they officially? They're they're either Catholic or they're or they're uh, Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, whatever that church, is. and they sort of look like us and. For a lot of the population here, they speak Russian, and that's fine with them. So uh, I don't think there'll be a big problem with that. But one of the more urgent consequences to this whole situation is, let's say shooting war starts, right? And Russia manages to, you know, stumble upon a block that they can't really roll over that easily. What happens in Russia then? What happens in Belarus, for example? I know that if Belarus tries to take part in all this situation, I am pretty sure that major protests will erupt instantly. But in Russia... I'm not so sure. In one case, I really believe that, you know, Russia could even fall apart. For example, Ramzan Kadyrov would definitely not stay in any Russia that has any sort of democratic reforms. But I have no idea. I have no idea of the repercussions. Uh, Certainly, I think the sooner that we have successful, low in human cost protests in Belarus, the better. Because Belarus, I think Belarus is, is sort of like a smaller Ukraine. They also want to be part of the West. They also want to be a democracy. They've been waiting for this for 27 years under this this guy that they can't seem to get rid of. You know, if the protests break out, unfortunate or maybe not so unfortunate consequence of that will be is that Lukashenko and his people will end up like Ceausescu. Somebody will, you know, they will be taken away to the nearest uh, forest clearing and blown away. Uh, that would be rough justice. You know, the right thing to do, of course, would have a big, big trial for all of these people and all of their Secret Service folks and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, if something like that happens, I, I think that that is the sad fate of authoritarian leaders. And it's probably not even going to be protesters who do the shooting here. I believe that it might as well be some people who are also involved in, in the whole situation who just shoot him to, you know, buy their own amnesty, buy their own freedoms. and not- Well, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, that's that's the way these things usually end. I mean, um, it's sort of the Ceausescu or Mussolini uh, variant, but I would find that kind of satisfying. You know, the guy finally got what he deserves. Lukashenko is, is gone utterly insane, and I believe that, you know, even if, like, if Putin starts something, Lukashenko's going to jump, jump, because like a little lapdog, he's just going to run after the big thing. We don't know. I mean, we don't know what the Belarusian military thinks. And what, I mean, the Belarusian military is going to realize that they're all going to just simply be a part of the Russian army now or what, you know, they're going to lose some kind of influence. They're going to, any corrupt networks that they've set up may be broken down or, you know, the guys may come in and say, well, you know, we're taking over now, whatever you guys have been doing, selling fuel to the farmers or something, which is a common racket for these Soviet-style armies, and that's it, you know? On the other hand, do you think that if if this invasion happens, I think that Sweden and Finland will definitely join NATO, like, the very same day? Well, not the same day, but it'll push it over the edge. I was talking to an ancestry uh, Swedish uh, retired military man, Karl Snedetnix, who you may or may not have heard of. He's a major general in the Swedish army, and he had a long military career, and he was actually the rector of the... uh, National the Defense University, Swedish Defense University, sort of like the West Point of Sweden, uh, but he's now retired. Um, he says that, yeah, definitely, that would push both of these countries over the edge. Finland would go first, and the Swedes would follow. Uh, not very happily, reluctantly, because there's always been this kind of uh, uh, fundamental uh, feeling that you, you don't join NATO officially. You do not 
signal that you like NATO in Sweden, while at the same time it was pretty clear, and this is what Carlos Neretniak sort of told me, that the Swedes uh, were always ready to, uh, to deal with NATO if something bad should happen that they were ready to share information, that, you know, they had the same military frequencies. There were even a number of Swedish, this he didn't tell me, but I've read this elsewhere. There are a number of Swedish military airfields. The, the runway is a lot longer than one needs for landing uh, uh, the Swedish Viggen and Gripen aircraft. You know, it, it could take, it could take the NATO aircraft. So if uh, worse came to worse, these countries would de facto, you know, uh, cooperate with NATO to defend themselves, or to, to you know to help defend the, or deal with with a bad situation in the Baltic countries. Yeah, you know this is this is kind of kind of weird because you know we've been talking in a very real politic type of conversation here so far. Maybe wrap this up. I want to kind of take a step back here and and think about this fact how we're how we're kind of worried about a massive European war again because this is this is not going to be some somewhat proxy ish. Like happened in in Donbas, and this isn't going to happen like in, in in Georgia. But isn't it weird that it's the 21st century and we still still have to follow this? On one hand, I, I kind of kind of think that maybe Putin's living in the past, since we we know that he doesn't actually read internet. He gets his news about what's happening on the net about from little red binders provided to him by his secret service, and he doesn't even use a smartphone, so maybe he's he's stuck in the past or something, you know, where he thinks that a country's glory is on their size or whatever. Russia is very huge already, and there's plenty of space for everyone there, and it's rich in natural resources, so I guess it's a cultural thing or, or something, but... Well, I think that it is. I think that there is, a at least in the Russian ruling elite, there is a historically rooted political culture of imperialism and glorification of physical power or military power and internally the glorification of authoritarian government, secret service power against anybody who sort of objects to what the rulers are doing, which is very sad because I think, uh, you know, Russians as, as ordinary folks deserve better than that. I mean, we see, we see how talented and, and how, how intelligent and, and, and uh, capable Russians can be when they are let out of their country. I mean, who started? Uh, I think it was Google was started by by well, at least one of the founders was Russian, Sergey Brin. We see Russians uh, popping up elsewhere in, in 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 kind of startups and and new industries and everything. And when they're you know allowed to develop freely, they're pretty nice folks and they're pretty smart folks. But now you know they're still trapped in this political culture of autocracy and. Uh, kind of, you know, secret service style uh, run, running of the government and of the state and of society. What do you mean, secret service? We were just looking at the Salisbury Cathedral. It's 123 meters tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, if you, brain drain is very real, because, you know, if you look at the past 20 years, you see more Russians uh, getting Nobel Prizes in sciences with American citizenship than you see Russians with Russian citizenship. Well, this is the point here. This is the point. Or also, you know, probably even see a more thriving and, and, and interesting Russian culture developing in a place like Israel, even though where the, you know, the official line is that once you've left your country, you should learn Hebrew and sing Hava Nagila or whatever you're supposed to do as a good Israeli. But even there you have, you know, and you have the IT uh, folks uh, and, and everything. So once you get <laughs> the Russians out of the Russia of kind of... Uh, 
secret police, authoritarianism, and sleazy dealings, and uh, then then you have uh, they have some some pretty interesting and dynamic people. But it's a shame that a fair amount of them are going to be dragged into a war now, and they're, they're going to lose their lives for nothing. Yeah, but to to end this, do you, do you really think that what are the odds that you give about for this to actually become a shooting war? I was skeptical about this at first, then it kind of increased again for a bit, and then it went down, but right now I, I actually give it about 50-50 in my own head. I'm sort of with you because I am I am a little bit put aback by this almost, you know, alarmist certainty from the American side, and the only justification for that is that they probably have some incredibly good intelligence, you know, signals intelligence, satellite intelligence, maybe even, you know... You know, British SAS troops might be, you know, wandering around the other side of the border, you know, to, to see what's going on. This is all really weird. Well, I hope it ends ends on the best way. Let's see how this goes, and if uh, if something starts out, I'll I'll definitely reach out to you because. Well, come back to me. Yes, we can talk about this again. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, thanks, thanks to Yuris for coming over to the show, and thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, well, check us out again next week when we'll have a bit more lighthearted episode. Such as they are on this show, but but still. <laughs> if the war hasn't started, then you can be lighthearted. Yeah. I guess so. Thank you. All right. So long then. Thanks for having me. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.